Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, that's the text that will be in this morning. The title of the message is Jesus, Friend of Sinners. Jesus, Friend of Sinners. You're sick. Those were the words of the doctor as he stepped into the examining room. The patient who had come for a routine checkup thought that he was in excellent, superb health. It was simply time for a periodic exam. But the doctor had come into the room with a look of concern on his face. He was holding some paperwork, reading the results of the patient's lab test. The doctor looked up and said bluntly, You, sir, are sick. The patient, a bit perturbed, said, Well, I would like a second opinion. And the doctor then added, Okay, you're not a very good dresser either. We don't like negative evaluations of ourselves. Whether it is our physical health, whether it is our appearance, whether it's our job performance, our character, our spiritual well-being, what, whatever way it comes to us, in whatever form or fashion it comes to us, we don't like negative evaluations of ourselves. But Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through the following, is a story about negative evaluations. The scribes question in the text questions really clearly suggest that Jesus is doing something wrong. Remember, it's the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite, the, 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 the spiritual giants of the day, the pastors to Israel who think they have it all together. But they are the very men who come and suggest that Jesus is doing everything wrong. They're critical of Jesus and his ministry. By his response, Jesus implies that his newfound friends are indeed sick and they are in need of his doctoring. As a matter of fact, Jesus looks at the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious uh, giants of the day, and he says, I didn't come for you. I came for the sick. I came for the needy. I came for the destitute. I came for the poor. I came for the outcast. I came for the rejects, those who knew they had a sin problem and received me with gladness and with eagerness. Because you certainly didn't. You had everything tied up in in nice prim and proper boxes, adorned with bows. Everything spiritually looked great from the outside, but the problem was on the inside. That was the thing that Jesus oftentimes took the Pharisees to task over. They had everything together. All All their I's dotted, all their T's crossed on the outside. Or on the inside, or outside rather, but on the inside, Jesus scored them and said, you're, you're, you're like a, a whitewashed tomb, and inwardly you are full of dead men's bones. There are four clear lessons in our text this morning. First, Jesus comes as a friend of sinners. The corresponding truth is also there in our text, and that's that Jesus comes as an enemy of the self-righteous. We'll see this morning as well that Jesus comes to bring joy and gladness, not mourning and sadness. And lastly, Jesus comes to introduce the new, not just simply to patch up the old. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. If you have the ability, let me encourage you to stand as we read God's sufficient and authoritative word together. This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, and these are the words that he pens. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Four points this morning on your outline, if you're taking notes, would certainly encourage you to do so. Number one is this, Jesus came as a friend of sinners. Jesus came as a friend of sinners. Let me draw your attention back to the first three verses there. Look at verses 13 through 15. Mark writes, and he, Jesus, went out again beside the sea. Remember, Jesus spent a lot of time in and around the Sea of Galilee. And all the crowd was coming to him. There we see the crowds again. Look what Jesus was doing. He was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting there at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, Levi, rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Our text this morning opens with Jesus doing what he is found doing most often. And that is teaching and preaching. Strolling dialogue was one of the most common ways for a rabbi to teach in Jesus' day. A rabbi, followed by his pupils, uh, would walk along the way uh, and he would teach as he walked. That was the the common way of teaching for a rabbi in Jesus' day. And so here we see, as Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, People followed behind him, and they listened to him as he taught. Jesus taught formally in synagogues much less often than he did informally throughout his ministry as he crisscrossed back and forth in and around the region of Galilee. Mark again highlights the fact that there is a crowd following Jesus' shadow, but the crowd is not the main focus of the text. You know, you would think from a human perspective that the crowd, the, the larger crowd, would have captivated Jesus' eye and garnered his attention. But as the crowds are following Jesus, as he's teaching, there is one man who catches his attention, and that's Levi. As Jesus strolled along the Sea of Galilee, he fixed his eyes on one man, Levi, the tax collector. Now, Levi 
was evidently Matthew, the gospel writer and the apostle's given name. As a matter of fact, Matthew uses his own name in his account of the story. Matthew writes, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and then he rose and followed him. It's Matthew 9.9. And so while Mark refers to him as Levi, Matthew refers to him by his own name. The person that we're seeing here in the text is Matthew, the gospel writer and the apostle of Jesus Christ. It's likely that Jesus is the one who changed Levi's name to Matthew. As a matter of fact, Jesus renamed many of his disciples. You'll remember that Jesus said to Simon, you shall be called Peter, or the rock upon which I will build my church. Jesus nicknamed uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, the sons of thunder, in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. And although scripture doesn't tell us for certain, it is likely that it was Jesus who changed Levi's name to Matthew, which, interestingly enough, means a gift from God. Matthew means a gift from God. Perhaps that's how Jesus thought of Levi, but that certainly is not how others would have thought of Levi, the tax collector, now named Matthew. A tax collector was hated in Jesus' day. They were lower than the scum on the bottom of scum. As Levi sat there in his tax booth each day, right there in the main thoroughfare into Capernaum. He would have extracted taxes from the locals, from fishermen that that came into the port, and from just those who were traveling throughout the area. The taxes that Levi collected would have included export taxes, import taxes, sales taxes, customs taxes, and other various tolls. It it would have been our modern-day toll booth. Now, of course, now we, we simply stick a toll tag on our car there, we can just pass under, and it electronically charges us the toll. Well, Levi's tax booth served as kind of a toll booth as you came into Capernaum. A lot of traffic coming in and out of Capernaum. A lot of sea traffic coming in and out of the harbor there in Capernaum. And unlike our current system, the Roman government did not collect taxes directly. As a matter of fact, they used a system known as tax farming to collect taxes. Uh, What they did is they, they fished out, so to speak, or handed out the tax collecting role or job to the highest bidder. And so essentially, tax collecting was set up like a franchise model, just the the highest bidder. And so what you had was the, the Roman government would assess a particular region or district or area uh, a, a tax dollar amount. And it was the tax collector's responsibility to collect that dollar amount in taxes. But in order for the tax collector to make a living himself, he had to not only collect the taxes that the Roman government imposed, but he had to collect enough to make a business for himself, to make a living for himself. And so tax collecting was oftentimes a very lucrative business. There there were incredible intricacies when it came to tax law, so to speak, in Jesus' day, a lot like there are now. I mean, some of our accountants in here know that come tax season, your eyeballs be- begin to uh, spin in your head because all the tax laws are, are ever-changing. 
And the same thing was the case in Jesus' day, so much so that the common man or the common woman oftentimes did not even know what, what they were responsible to pay. And so a tax collector sitting there in the tax booth could charge whatever he wanted so long as he met Rome's requirement and he could skim off or garner off the top whatever amount he so wished. And so this profession... Uh, this, this model of tax collecting, this profession coupled with the disease of sin in the human heart lent itself to dishonesty, to corruption. Let me give you a snapshot of a tax collector here. They were seen, and many were, as being absolutely dishonest. Again, there was a tax for almost everything, and it would have been nearly impossible for the common folks to understand the elaborate list of taxes and their ever-changing rates. Tax collectors were known to overcharge people, to, to take off the top. Their profession attracted enterprising individuals with a thirst for greed. And if you couldn't pay your taxes when you passed by the toll booth, no problem. The tax collector would, would give you a loan with an incredibly high interest rate. And so it just kept people in this, in this uh, spin cycle, never able to get out oftentimes, especially for those who didn't have much and people who... Uh, were not of means. Tax collectors took bribes from the rich and they, ex- they extorted the poor. Uh, they were oftentimes dishonest. They were also disqualified. Tax collectors were not allowed to give testimony as a witness because no one trusted them. And so they couldn't be called to court to stand before the court as a witness for anyone. Absolutely disqualified themselves, had no trust. They were oftentimes disloyal. Though Levi himself was Jewish, he was considered a traitor because he worked for the despised Roman government. And so here you have a a Jewish individual who's working for the Roman government, collecting taxes for Rome from his Jewish brothers and sisters. So they were oftentimes seen as disloyal traitors. In the eyes of his fellow Jews, Levi had turned his back on his family, his nation, and his God. You're beginning to see how how distasteful a tax collector was seen in Jesus' day. They were detested. Tax collectors were classed with murderers and robbers. They were the worst of the worst. Jewish people despised them even more than Roman officials or soldiers. Sometimes children would come up and spit at tax collectors, encouraged to do so by their parents. They were also seen as defiled. Levi was considered an outcast and would have been excommunicated from the synagogue. He, he could not, even as a Jewish man, could not have gone to the synagogue and worshipped there, though I don't think he would have wanted to anyway. According to the rabbis of the day, there was no hope for a man like Levi that we know as Matthew. This is the portrait of the unsuspecting character that Jesus fixes his attention on. We should note that This is likely not Levi's first encounter with Jesus. Remember, Jesus has been ministering uh, in and through Capernaum. He's been in and out of the region of Galilee. And so it's probable uh, that Levi has heard Jesus teach already at this point. Perhaps uh, he was around as as the masses were outside of Peter's mother-in-law's home, as Jesus preached and taught there, and as he healed uh, those who had diseases, and as he cast out demons. Uh, But it's probable Uh, because of Jesus' growing popularity, that Levi uh, would have had some interaction. At least he would have heard Jesus in the days prior. It's also probable that that the brothers, that the four disciples that Jesus has called at this point, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John, remember they were all four fishermen. 
It's very probable that these four men knew Levi well because they would have had to pay taxes on their fishing business. It was to this very man, this dishonest, disqualified, disloyal, detested, defiled tax collector that Jesus sets his eyes on, that Jesus turns his attention to, that Jesus calls. We should note here that that as money-hungry as the tax collectors often were, the call of Jesus Christ is stronger. The call of Jesus Christ is stronger than the love of money. The call of Jesus Christ is stronger than the love of any sin. Every single one of us are sunk in sin and so wedded to the world that we would never turn to God and seek salvation on our own unless he first turned his attention. Jesus first turned his attention to us and called us by his grace. Just as a magnet attracts iron and the south winds soften the frozen ground, so does Christ's calling draw sinners out of the world and melt the hardest of hearts. We see that clearly here in the person and work of Levi, as he encounters Jesus. And we look at Jesus' call to Levi here. Jesus says, follow me. The word follow means to walk the same road. It means to join with one as an attendant or disciple, to, to be side by side in a cause with another, or to follow after one who precedes the ways. All of these are realities that are implied in Jesus' call for Levi to follow him. But it's interesting to note that the literal Greek here that Jesus uses is this, follow with me. That's the literal translation of the Greek there. Jesus looks at Levi and he says, follow with me. You see, Levi was a business partner to Rome. Having worked for the Roman government, he was a business partner to Rome. He collected taxes, but he was also a shareholder or a stakeholder in the prophets. And so implicit in Jesus' call for Levi to follow him is the reality that Levi was to change partners and now become Jesus' partner in his spiritual enterprise. What Jesus is communicating here to Levi, follow with me. And how does Levi respond to this call? Well, Luke provides some additional insight for us here. Uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 28. Don't turn there. You can uh, look later if you wish. Jot it down there in the margin. But Luke provides some additional insight for us. He writes, and leaving everything, he, Levi, arose and followed him. Levi left everything to follow Jesus. In the original, this sentence reads this way. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. Levi's response here was nothing short of wholehearted. He totally made a complete break with his tax business. He didn't stick around to gather any more shekels or to spend an additional day tidying up his books. He got up, left it all behind, and followed Christ. In an instant, without hesitation, he walks out on his business. He cuts all ties to Roman influence. He leaves behind the power that money can buy and everything associated with it and follows Jesus. The four fishermen that Jesus called earlier, they could go back to their fishing enterprise. And we see later in the Gospels that they did. But for Levi, his work as a tax collector from this day forward was over. It was over. When Levi followed Jesus, he burned all the bridges to his profession in the process. He had become a new creation. No turning back, no turning back. 
Friends, it would, uh, we would be well to be reminded here that following Jesus does not mean that we try to make our old life compatible with Christianity. It means turning your back on your old life and making haste to follow and obey Jesus, whatever the cost. We see that in the life of Levi. Has the call to follow Christ superseded every other loyalty and priority in your life? Think for just a moment here. Personalize the text. Does Christ have complete control of your time? Does Christ have complete control of your vocation, your money, your retirement, your leisure, your friends, your house, your social life, and even your personal reputation? And the list could go on and on and on. Does the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, follow me, have lordship over all those areas and all those facets of your life? The command to follow Christ means that you entrust him with everything. The story's been told of a chicken and a pig who were once walking down the road together. And as they were walking and talking, they, they passed a sign for a local diner, and they noticed that the sign said, breakfast special, ham and eggs, $2.95. The chicken said, that's our whole contribution to society, breakfast food? The pig replied, for you it may be a contribution, but for me it's total commitment. Can, can you see the point, though? Total commitment. Jesus demands our all. He doesn't ask us to to try to make our previous past life compatible with Christianity. Repentance means a change of mind. It means I turn from from walking in my sin, loving my sin, sin being the, 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 the dominating factor in my life to following Christ and turning my back on all else. And so here you have Levi, a new convert, He's become a new creation right there in the tax booth, closes the door on his tax booth and follows Jesus. And look at verse 15 here. Look at verse 15. What happens next? Mark writes, And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Luke adds some additional detail here, saying, And Levi made for him, for Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a, I love this detail here, a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. What's taking place here? What's taking place in the text? I'll tell you what's taking place in the text. There is a party taking place in the text. Levi's conversion was such a momentous event in his life that he celebrated by throwing a party and he invited Jesus along with all the rest of his non-Christian friends to join in the celebration. And friends, I'll tell you, Jesus certainly understands the celebration of a saved life. As a matter of fact, Jesus described the prodigal's father, familiar story to most of us, as saying this, Luke chapter 15 verse 32, The prodigal's father says, it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for this brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. 
There's a celebration taking place in our text, a a conversion party, so to speak, taking place in our text. And Levi, now named Matthew, has invited Jesus, but he has invited all of his other non-Christian friends to the same party. And Jesus does not leave. Jesus doesn't scram. He doesn't hit the road when he sees the guest list. As a matter of fact, we find Jesus in the text reclining at the table. This isn't some casual sitting at the corner space on the table. Jesus is laying prostrate on the ground with his fist under his cheek at the party. He's a guest at the party along with all of Matthew's non-Christian friends. You ask, well, why is Levi throwing a party here, I would suggest to you that he probably has several agendas behind his party, but I I think he probably wants to say goodbye to the old crowd. He probably wants to explain why, why he's getting out of the tax business, because his friends, other tax collectors, are looking at him thinking, Levi, have you lost your ever loving mind? I mean, do you know what kind of income you can garner? And you're gonna you're gonna close the booth door and kiss it all goodbye? Levi wants to explain that. I think he definitely wants to introduce his friends to Jesus who has come and offered him unconditional love, forgiveness full and free, pardon from his sin, and saved his soul. You know, some of the most effective evangelists are brand new Christians. One, because they have a white-hot zeal for what Christ has done in their heart and in their lives. And two, they have a whole slew of non-Christian friends. And so... New believers are, are, are some of the, if, if you're in here and you're a new believer, you, you have one of the most effective potential ministries to the lost. Unfortunately, over time, zeal can wane and relationships with non-Christians begin to be replaced by relationships with uh, Christians. And there's a real sense in which that is a good thing. I mean, as believers, we, we, we want to be growing in relationship with other like-minded believers and, and assembling together and encouraging one another and growing in the word together and encouraging one another to fix our eyes on Jesus. So there's a sense in which that is absolutely biblically true, but we ought not do that to the exclusion of maintaining non-Christian friends. doesn't mean that we swim in the same circle with them do the same things they do, think the same way they think, go to the same places that they go, watch the same things that they watch, speak the same way they speak, or think the same way that they think. As a matter of fact, absolutely the antithesis is the case because we're new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. But we ought to be maintaining friendship relationships with non-Christians. Brothers and sisters, let, let me remind you, there is no impact without contact. We won't have spiritual impact in the lives of others unless we have contact with them. Look again who's attendance here, in attendance, as we think about contact. Mark notes that there are many tax collectors and sinners present. Now, the word sinners here is a technical term that describes a class of people who were, by the Pharisees, considered inferior. So it has kind of a double meaning. Sinners can can mean the immoral, which is probably certainly true of some that were in attendance at Levi's conversion party here. But sinners is also a class of people deemed by the Pharisees as those who were unclean. Jewish people who did not subscribe to Jewish religious practices, and therefore they were considered by the Pharisees as unclean. It was a way that the Pharisees spoke looking down 
at those who did not subscribe to their religious practices. They're sinners. The whole class of people. And so you have morally impure sinners, and you have those that did not subscribe to Jewish religious practices. These people were dismissed as inconsequential because they just didn't live their lives according to certain religious practices. They didn't eat their food in a state of ceremonial cleanliness. They didn't tithe in the, in the right way or tithe at all. And so the designation sinners here in your text uh, is roughly the equivalent of outcasts. And these are just the people that Jesus pursued and spent time with. I mean, think, think already as we've studied through, systematically studied through Mark's gospel. We find Jesus with the leper. We find Jesus uh, in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. Again, marginalized, outcast. The people that no one wanted to have anything to do with, and yet Jesus draws near to those individuals. Think about the adulterous woman in John chapter 8 uh, who's standing there before the, 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 the cocked arms of the religious leaders, stones in hand, ready to kill her. Those are the people whom Jesus is drawn to and preaches the gospel to. Why? Well, we'll see later in our text that those are precisely the people who recognize their need for Christ. That recognize their lostness, recognize their fault, recognize their failure, recognize their sin, and see Jesus as being a fit physician. Jesus is a friend of sinners. C.T. Studd once said, some people like to dwell within the sound of a church and a chapel bell, speaking about some Christians, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Wow. Does that describe us? Some people are just really content to hang out in the holy huddle. Some people are, are really content to spend their time exclusively with other Christians, C.T. Studd here says, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Spurgeon made a similar statement. He said this, he said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. This is the way that Jesus operated. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And brothers and sisters, mark it down. There is not a single sinner who is outside of God's sovereign reach of grace. There is not a single person, man, woman, boy, child, who is too vile, too corrupt, too loathsome, too disgraceful, too monstrous, deplorable, wicked, reprehensible, or depraved that Jesus Christ cannot save. The same voice that called Levi out of the tax booth saying, follow me, can call the chief of sinners home. And that gives you and I wonderful hope as we pray for and preach the gospel to our non-believing friends. Take it to the bank. If Jesus Christ can save you and me, he can save anyone. Number two, Jesus came as an enemy of the self-righteous. Jesus came as a friend of sinners, but he came certainly as an enemy of the self-righteous. Look at your Bibles there again. Look at verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Other gospels add a few words there. I came to call sinners to repentance. The problem in a nutshell here is that Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus is spending time with the social outcasts rather than fasting and praying with the righteous, religious, more spiritual crew. Mark doesn't say Jesus is teaching, preaching, or sharing his faith at this party. Interesting. Doesn't mean that he's not, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that when you go to a place like this and engage with your non-believing friends, that you don't do those things. But it is interesting to note here that Mark does not tell us that Jesus is engaging in that type of activity here. He's not teaching here, he's not preaching here, and he's not sharing his faith, at least explicitly stated in the text. That's what Jesus was doing when the crowds were following him as he called Levi out of the tax booth. Verse 15 says that Jesus is reclining at the table Verse 16 says that he's eating and drinking with sinners, social outcasts, and tax collectors. You see, in Middle Eastern culture, in a first century setting, to eat and drink with a person was to accept him or her. It was a commitment to intimacy. You you, you didn't just stroll into a person's front door and and, and sit at their dining room table uh, and shoot the breeze. It was a much more intimate setting in Jesus' day, first century Judaism. Jesus eats and drinks with these outcasts as if they were his friends, and Jesus does not seem to care who notices it. The scribes and the Pharisees faulted Jesus for reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners because they themselves looked down on this less-than-human group. But Jesus had come for just such a miserable bunch. Jesus came as a physician to the sick and needy, and that's exactly who he's spending time with here. And so Jesus turns the question back on the Pharisees in the last phrase of verse 17. He's saying, repentance is impossible for self-righteous, respectable, spiritually self-sufficient people. You see, the gospel has nothing to say for those, or nothing to say to those who think they have it all together and have no need for Jesus. Jesus is suggesting that tax collectors and sinners are much more open to truth. They know their need much better than these well-trained professional religionists. Let me pause here for a second. What do we know about this special office of physician that Jesus occupies? Have you ever felt your spiritual sickness Have you ever felt your sin and applied to Jesus Christ for relief, for forgiveness from your sins? To feel our sins and to know our sickness and our disease is the beginning of real Christianity. To be sensible of our corruption and to abhor our sins and our transgressions is the first symptom of spiritual health. Happy indeed are they who have found their soul's disease, for Jesus is the only physician that you require. Jesus is the perfect doctor to heal us from sin's disease. Think about this for a second. He's always available. He's always on call. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. He always makes a perfect diagnosis. He provides a complete cure. And let me remind you, 
he pays the bill. He pays the bill. He's always available. He always makes perfect diagnosis. He offers a complete cure, and he even pays the bill at the expense of his own life. Here's a sobering thought, friends. Is it possible that we, at times, are just like the Pharisees in our text? Is it possible that we are more like them at times than we are dislike them? While we would never subscribe to the ideology of the Pharisees, lock, stock, and barrel, we can actually, if we're not careful, live as practical Pharisees. I mean, think about this for a moment. We can come to Christ, and in our desire to be godly, we seek out people who are just like us. The constant tug that we must daily resist is to arrange our lives so that we are with non-believers as little as possible. It's a constant tug there, and we must resist it. This certainly couldn't have been said of Jesus. Oftentimes, we attend Bible studies that are 100% Christian. We attend Sunday school classes that are 100% Christian. We go to prayer meetings that are 100% Christian. We play tennis and baseball and basketball and racquetball and every other leisurely sport with 100% Christians. We eat dinner with Christians. We have Christian doctors, Christian dentists, Christian plumbers, Christian veterinarians, and everything in between. The result is, is that we pass by hundreds and hundreds of people without ever noticing them or positively influencing them for Christ. You see, we aren't Pharisees philosophically, but it's very possible to be one practically. We need to stop and look around. There are Levi's all around us. Hey, there are some Levi's sitting in here this morning. Do you only spend time with believers? Let me encourage you here. Literally, take five or seven seconds and write down the name of a non-believer in the margin of your notes. Do it. Write down the name of a non-believer whom you have a relationship with in the margin of your notes. First and last name. Now, let me ask you this question. What is one thing that you can do this week to spend time with that person? Can you invite them to your home? Can you invite them to coffee together? Can you go to a play date? Can you, can you watch some sports with this person? What can you do? There's a whole lot of ways to skin a cat. What can you do to spend time with this person this week in an effort to and with an agenda to influence them with the gospel? When Jesus prayed for his followers, he asked his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I think one of the reasons that Jesus did not take us out of the world the moment that we were converted, the moment that we became new creations, the moment that we came to saving faith in Christ, is because he wants to use you to influence the lost with the light of the gospel. When Oliver Cromwell ruled England in the mid-1600s, the nation experienced a crisis when they ran out of silver and they couldn't mint any more coins. And so Cromwell sent his soldiers to the nearby cathedral to see if there was any silver available there, to the nearby church. And when these soldiers came back, when they reported back, they said the only silver is in the statue of the saints, to which Cromwell replied, 
melt down the saints, and get them back into circulation. Now, brothers and sisters, let's ask Jesus to melt us down so that we can get back into circulation. Let's ask him to melt us down so that we can get back into the lives of the lost in the world that we live in. If you're saved, it's time to shine. Jesus came as an enemy to the self-righteous. Number three, Jesus came to bring joy and gladness, not mourning and sadness. Look at verses 18 through 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and in that day they will fast. The first concern of Jesus' critics centered on the company that Jesus kept. How in the world is it that Jesus is reclining at the party with tax collectors and sinners? Their their first critical remarks were with the who that Jesus was spending time with. The second issue that they seem to raise is that Jesus is conducting himself in an improper way religiously. You see, the Pharisees note that Jesus isn't austere, he's not, he's not formal, he's not cold, he's not stiff, and he's not solemn. Matter of fact, Jesus seemed to be enjoying the time around the table with Levi and his fellow tax collectors and sinners. Now, make no mistake about it, Jesus' presence at this party in no way condoned or endorsed the activity of the lives of those who were present. Jesus called out sin where he found it. The whole point of the text, though, here is that those who are classed tax collectors and sinners oftentimes see their need for Christ in a way that the religious do not. Because we oftentimes see ourselves as having it all together and not in need of a physician. Jesus' presence with outcasts and sinners doesn't mean that he turns a blind eye to their sinful rebelliousness. But Jesus' critics couldn't understand how he could be having such an enjoyable time sharing a meal with such a ragtag bunch when there was fasting to to happen, when fasting should be taking place. And so the question here in the text is, well, why were John's disciples and the Pharisees fasting? And I don't have a great answer for that question. It's very possible that John's disciples were fasting because John had recently been imprisoned. We'll find out in Mark uh, chapter 6, uh, that John is beheaded there in prison. It's a, gri- it's a grisly story. Uh, we'll, we'll be there shortly. But it's, it's very possible that, that John's disciples are, are fasting for that reason. The Pharisees, on the other hand, fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. You can see that in Luke chapter 18. And it's possible that this feast in Levi's house may have occurred on one of those two days. And so whatever the reason that John the Baptist's disciples are fasting... And the Pharisees are fasting. What they're seeing is that Jesus is missing the mark as far as religious expectations are concerned. He's he's not doing the more spiritual thing. As a matter of fact, he's hanging out with the scum of the earth. The scribes and the Pharisees imposed a legalism upon the Jewish people 
Jewish religion had become a massive, massive burden on the people. Rules upon rules upon rules upon rules were added to the law, set before the people to obey. I mean, Judaism had become an oppressive religion. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. You see, there was no room for delight, only strict duty. That's what the Pharisees see here. Why is Jesus delighting at the party when he should be somber and austere and sober and fasting like we are? And so Jesus gives us some rationale here by way of a wedding feast metaphor. Jesus drew on a powerful picture among the Jews. Matter of fact, during week-long wedding celebrations, rabbis often declared that joy was more important than observing religious rituals. Jesus' whole point here is that a relationship with him brings joy. A love relationship with the bridegroom means spontaneous devotion to him. Love doesn't demand performance or religious rituals or observance. Jesus is saying, you, you can't make my disciples fast. They're not fasting because they're enthralled with me. There's nothing to fast about right now. Now there's coming a day when the Son of Man will be delivered over and he'll be crucified and killed. And in that day, there will be reason for fasting. But today, today is a day of celebration. Just like at a wedding. There's no fasting at a wedding. It's a joyous time. It's a festive occasion. Jesus is likening the time that he's in now, spending time with these tax collectors and sinners as being like the wedding festivities. Religious law demands external piety, but God's love creates internal authenticity. Religious law controls behavior, but God's love changes hearts. And when God's love breaks in and changes a cold, dead, sinful heart and makes it alive again, joy is the result. Spontaneous exuberance. Uh, Friends, Christians ought to be the most joyful people on the face of the planet. Now, does that mean that there aren't times uh, where, where there is a somberness and a solemnness Does it mean that there are times where there isn't frustration and discouragement? We live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. It does not mean that. There are those times. But as an overarching rule, Christians, the redeemed, the the adopted, the reconciled, the ransomed, the called, the bride, ought to be among the most joyful people on the face of the planet. And spreading, sprinkling that joy into the lives of others as we come into contact with them on a daily basis. What Jesus is trying to communicate to the religious leaders here is that he came to bring joy and gladness, not mourning and sadness. The Old Testament law brought sadness because all it did was expose our sin. All it was was like a schoolmaster that showed us how far short we fall. How how woeful we are in measuring up to God's exacting standards. Of course that brings mourning and sadness. But the gospel, salvation in Christ alone, righteousness credited from his account to our otherwise bankrupt account brings joy. Joy. 
Are you joyful? I hope you are. I, I hope that when people think about the chapel, they think about a bunch of joyful, joyful people. Number four, let's land the plane this morning. Jesus came to introduce the new, not to patch up the old. Jesus came to introduce the new, not to patch up the old. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were at times impressed with his teaching, and at times they were disgusted by his teaching. Remember, Jesus, it was said of him that his teaching superseded or excelled above the teaching by way of its authority than the scribes and the, the elders and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees. But the religious leaders at times were impressed with parts of Jesus' teaching. And perhaps they would have uh, looked at Jesus' teaching and they would have taken some of his ideas and by way of addition, they would have made them a part of their own religious traditions. They were hoping for some sort of compromise. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, taking some of Jesus' teaching, putting it together and hoping for some sort of religious compromise that would allow them to retain their religious traditions and what Jesus had to offer. But Jesus did not come simply to be added to their legalistic, man-made, hollow religion. Here's the point. Friends, get this. If you, if you get anything from point number four here, Jesus wants your warm devotion, not your legalistic religion. What Jesus wants is your warm devotion to him not your legalistic religion. And so Jesus shares two parables with us, one of an old garment versus a new garment and one of old wineskins versus new wineskins. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. The garment symbolized the covering of man's sinful condition in the Old Testament. Jews were to lay aside the old garment of, of the, the Mosaic law and to put on the new garment of, of the Messiah. You see, Judaism, Jewish religion had become rigid and inflexible because of the traditions that had been encrusted to it. And so Jesus comes and he says, there needs to be a new garment. Don't just try to patch Christianity onto all of your old traditions and call it Christianity. You can't do that. It's foolish. What you'll have is it'll all shrink and it'll all tear and it'll all be worse than before. Jesus says the, the new dispensation, the new covenant in my blood is replacing the old. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then look at verse 22. Jesus uses a similar illustration here with old wineskins and new wineskins. Jesus says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Wine you see, in the Old Testament, wine was a symbol of joy. At the final Passover meal, Jesus celebrated with his disciples, and he chose wine as a symbol of the new covenant agreement for living in relationship with God. This new life that he offers, life in the Holy Spirit, it's powerful and it's dynamic and it's exhilarating. It's, it's something like new wine, which is still in the process of fermentation. And so it's volatile and it's active. It's too strong to be enclosed in, in stiff, rigid, old forms of traditional religion. 
What Jesus is trying to teach here is that there is an incompatibility between old and new. The writer of Hebrews contrasts this old and new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 7, just, just bear with me here for a second. He writes this, For on the one hand, a former commandment, that's the old, the old dispensation, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. You see what Jesus is doing here is he's trading fasting for, fe- for feasting, sackcloth and ashes for a robe of righteousness, a spirit of heaviness for a garment of praise and mourning for joy and law and for grace. Jesus says it's the new, the new, the new. It's the gospel. Don't try to add it on to your old traditions and your old, your old spiritual ways of doing things. Repent and believe in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we're becoming more and more like Levi here, more and more like Matthew. You have only two choices. You follow Jesus like Levi, like Matthew did, which leads to celebration. Or you end up like the Pharisees, standing outside looking in, being grumpy and critical and judgmental and accusing. It's a pretty simple choice. You follow Jesus into a life of increasing freedom and joy and spontaneity and flexibility, or you become stiff and rigid and resentful and resistant to the work of the Holy Spirit. I hope you, like I do, want to become more like Levi, this converted tax collector. And the great thing is is that God really does have wonderful plans for our lives if, not just a great Christian tagline, if we'll follow him and obey him. Do you know him personally? You come to a saving knowledge of Christ by faith in him alone, his righteousness credited to your otherwise bankrupt account. You know him in that way. You become a new creation. If not, call out to the Lord. Paul tells us that today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is uh, so challenging. Thank you that it instructs us and it teaches us. Uh, Lord, thank you for this story of Levi converted, new, new name, Matthew, a gift of God. Uh, thank you for what we see exemplified in his life, uh, Lord, we, we want to be bringing our lost friends uh, to Jesus. Uh, we want to be separating ourselves from our old, unconverted life uh, and obeying Jesus, whatever the cost. And, uh, Lord, we want you to have uh, exclusive rights and lordship over every facet of our lives, over our thoughts and our intentions and our motivations and our words and our relationships. Lord, we, we want you to exercise dominion and authority. That we want to be submissive to that. Father, uh, we pray that we would hold fast to the gospel and the gospel alone, that we would not try to add the gospel to any sort of religious system. Uh, Lord, it's the gospel that saves alone. And uh, Lord, I pray that each person here uh, has come to a place of saving faith in Jesus Christ, uh, where the old has gone and the new has come. Lord, would you make it so for your name and your renown and your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.